If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. It's been about 30 years since the events of the last chapter and the first two chapters of Luke. Both Jesus and John have grown from infancy to adulthood. <clears throat> and now is the time for them both to be revealed publicly to the nation. First John and then Jesus. Let's start reading in, in verse 1 of Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, Make his paths straight. Seemingly out of nowhere, after 400 years of silence from Yahweh, came John the Baptist into what is perhaps the most inhospitable region of Israel, the wilderness of Judea. It's near the north end of the Dead Sea. It's where the Jordan runs into the Dead Sea. This place was a full hard day's journey from Jerusalem, and it seems to be an odd location to announce the arrival of the Messiah. But it is perfectly in keeping with God's ways, as it was for Jesus to be born of a very poor couple, and his first bed was a feeding trough, the manger, those are God's ways, as we, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Interestingly, John was clearly recognized and acclaimed by the people as a prophet of God. His words, his methods and actions, his clothing, and even his diet reminded them of the Old Testament prophets, especially Elijah. He boldly called for people to repent, not just as an outward show, but genuine inner holiness. He called people to prepare themselves individually for the imminent coming of the kingdom of heaven. He said it's at hand. It's called the kingdom of God elsewhere. Matthew is the only one who uses that phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And that was probably because he was sensitive to the Jewish reluctance to actually pronounce, actually speak the name of God. Now, John will also, as we'll see, he'll also announce the coming of the Messiah. And this is what everyone had been waiting for. And in recent years, truly expecting while the Old Testament prophets had preached his future coming, 
Nobody had ever said, he's here. But listen to what John says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. He says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So here again, Matthew ties this to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, saying that John is the one prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 4. Now, John's role was to prepare the people to clean up the nation morally, as the angel had told his father Zechariah. You remember back in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah is talking, or the angel is talking to Zechariah about John, about the child that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have. And the angel said, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. But Matthew goes on now. He describes John's clothing, his diet, and actually how he was fulfilling his mission. Verse 4. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. This man wasn't fooling around, and clearly he lived the raw truth of what he was proclaiming, even in his clothing and his diet. But interestingly, and I'm not really surprised, people were drawn to John, seeing or sensing that he was real, he was truly genuine, unlike most of the religious leaders of the day. They actually flocked to him from all over the land. And they came to him to do something that was most unusual. Something about John led the people to do what would normally be a very difficult, even unheard of thing, to publicly confess and repent of their sins, to personally, individually turn away from sin and towards God. 
to do a, a full 180 degree change. This was new. Until that time, it was only on Yom Kippur when the nation corporately through the high priest confessed its sins. He was saying, in other words, the Messiah was coming. So each individual was charged to clean up his or her act. <laughs> I think we should be doing the same thing today because the Messiah is coming again. And the way he did it, the way that John carried out his mission was through full immersion water baptism. It was a public symbol for each person's inner repentance, for the remission, for the forgiveness of their sins. That was how he was fulfilling the mission that Isaiah had mentioned, preparing the way for the Lord by getting people to clean up their act morally. Now, his baptism for the remission of sins, New Testament baptism, I'm sorry, excuse me, John's baptism was for the remission of sins. New Testament Christian baptism, after Christ's crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, certainly includes confession and repentance for forgiveness of sins, which actually should happen before baptism. But it also, most importantly, identifies the person with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6. He says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So that's kind of talking about what we know in the New Testament period in the church age as baptism. But John's was different. So go on now, and we're going to pick it up again in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees Coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, the picture he's giving here is of a field full of snakes racing away from fire, consuming the field. He goes on, verse 8, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, show that this is real, that you're really repenting. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. 
and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, John is telling everyone, including the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that you must act, you must do repentance, because salvation isn't automatic for Jews. There was this belief that if you were a descendant, a biological descendant of Abraham, that somehow you would automatically go to heaven. And John is making it very clear to them, that ain't the case, guys. He was bold as Elijah. John sees the religious leaders coming, and he just pounces on them, calling them vipers, snakes, with a warning that's really very similar to the one that Jesus would use a year or so later. Later on in Matthew, we're going to read in chapter 23 that Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, calls out serpents, brood of vipers. There it is, the same image. How can you escape the condemnation of hell, he said. <laughs> now, we aren't told, <clears throat> excuse me, why the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to John. Perhaps they wanted to be seen as being of the people, and so would go through the external motions, perhaps, of being baptized, uh, pretending to repent. If so, John charged them to show evidence, bear fruits worthy of repentance. You see, repent is not a passive verb. It required and does require action. Or maybe the Pharisees and Sadducees, as leaders in Judaism, maybe they wanted to check John out, since everyone was calling him a prophet. And honestly, that would be a responsible thing for leaders to do. We need to do it in the church today. When somebody just claims to be something or to do something or is teaching something, we don't just swallow it, but we need to check it out. We need to compare what they're doing with God's word, see if it fits. Oftentimes people come and they're claiming this and claiming that, and uh, they're false. I myself in 40 some odd years now as a believer in many of those years, as a leader of some organization or a home fellowship or so, many times, well not many, maybe over those years, half a dozen or so, but that's too many, I've, I've had to confront people who were bringing false doctrine, who were trying to draw people away from the truth of the Word of God. And I've had to confront them, and in those cases, I've had to kick them out, basically disfellowship them. And uh, it's not easy, it's not fun, but as a leader, it's a responsible thing to do. Maybe that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing, checking John out. But either way, John made it clear that they couldn't use their ethnic ties to Abraham as a means to avoid any need to repentance. It was commonly believed that 
ethnic Jews didn't have to worry about judgment because their relationship to Abraham protected them. And again, John directly blew the idea apart by saying, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And that every tree, meaning person, who doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down. And that God, the one wielding the axe, is already getting ready to do so. And after that, that warning in verse 11, he goes on, he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He's talking about false teachers. And here John contrasts himself to Christ. As we see in the parallel gospel accounts, many people thought that John was himself the Messiah and was even asked if he was presenting himself as the Christ, which he forcefully denied. So he tells them who he is, as prophesied by both Isaiah and Malachi. Then he tells them how low he is as compared to Christ. Now, he talked about sandals not worthy to carry. In that culture, to deal with the feet of another person washing their feet or tying or carrying their sandals was only done by the very lowest slave. See, everybody wore sandals and they walked through dirty, muddy, dusty streets and their feet, everybody's feet, were dirty. So the lowest slave was the one who would wash their feet and maybe carry their sandals and so forth. Even the disciples of rabbis were not to do such things. But here, John says that he is even lower than that when compared to Christ. He gives an extreme example, but truly, as we know from the rest of Scripture, nobody can really be compared to Christ because he is infinitely higher than any other human being. Going further, though, John contrasts his baptism with water for repentance with the baptism, the overwhelming immersion that will be done by Christ with the Holy Spirit to believers. We read about that in Acts chapter 2. And with the fires of judgment for non-believers. Read about that in Revelation chapter 20. You see, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is that inexpressibly wonderful event that occurs at the moment of salvation when Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit to live within us, where, Jesus tells us, he will abide forever, where he will always be with us, where he will guide us, 
advise us, direct us, comfort us, convict us, teach us, remind us of Jesus' words, intercede for us, and guide us into all truth and testify of Christ. God himself always within us. That is what Jesus does for believers. That is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But things are very different for those who choose to reject Christ. For them is the baptism with the fires of judgment. I'll read in Revelation 20 verses 9 and 10 and then 14 and 15. They, meaning evil rebellious nations, went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And a few verses later we read, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now in Matthew's gospel, later on from where we are in chapter 13, we read this. The Son of Man, this is Jesus talking, he says, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. A few verses later, he says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The baptism of fire, the fires of judgment. And yet, that's what's coming in the future. But and yet there is still time, though probably not much, for his first coming, which we'll look at next week, Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That was his first coming. But the next time, what we call his second coming, that will be to judge the world. I'm reading in Revelation 19. John, the apostle, says what he saw. He says, now I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. I believe that's us, folks, after the rapture. 
Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people free and slave both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And all that, folks, we know is followed by the final judgment of unbelieving people at the great white throne, from which they are cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, while they will suffer forever. But next week, we'll see Jesus arrive on the scene at his first coming, his three and a half years of gracious ministry to save mankind would begin. Talking about John's baptism of repentance, Pia and I knew a young lady some years ago who had an interesting story to tell us. She had been recently saved. She was uh, at a church in Hawaii, and uh, she uh, raised her hand, said a prayer, went forward, got a book, went through the standard formula, but afterwards, she, she felt empty. She felt like something was missing, like things just aren't right. And she didn't feel saved, I guess is the way you could put it. it, it she felt very uneasy. And so she went and talked to the pastor. And um, the pastor asked her to describe what she was doing, what she was feeling, and what she had done when she came forward at an altar call. And as he looked at her, he said, did you, did you repent of your sins? She said, well, I, no, I, I, don't, I don't know what that means. So he explained to her what repentance means. It means 
turning away in the in this biblical sense it means confessing and turning away from your sins doing 180 degrees and turning towards God to believe in to obey him to read his word to live for him that's what repentance means and nobody had talked to her about that so right there he led her in prayers of repentance and she testifies that immediately after she had done that immediately she felt free she felt light she she knew that she was saved that Jesus had paid the price for her sins that she confessed and repented of. I tell that story because what John was doing in baptizing for the remission of sins was incredibly important. And he was doing that. Individual people coming forward and individually confessing their sins and repenting of them doing that right there in the water and then John would immerse them in the water bring them back up and they were morally cleansed and as a nation with so many people doing that with John as a nation they were being cleaned morally getting ready for the Messiah to show up, to come. And as we'll see next week, that's exactly what happens. The Messiah does show up. John testifies of him. And that wonderful three and a half year ministry begins, culminating, of course, as we know, in the crucifixion resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. But repentance is something that is so necessary. Without repentance, we're told there's no remission for sins. There's no forgiveness. It's not only confession, but confession has to include repenting of that sin as well as confessing it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for John the Baptist. We thank you for sending him on his mission to cleanse the people of Israel morally. And Lord, as we read that, we're challenged that we need to do the same as well. Though that should have come before, before we truly received Christ, and yet we know, Lord, that because we all still sin, when we do and we go to you and we confess our sins, as you tell us to do in 1 John 1, 9, we need also to repent, to turn away from that sin. And by the power of the Holy Spirit within us and by our, our best efforts ourselves, we need to not do that sin anymore. We know that we all fail there, 
But we also know that as your spirit becomes stronger and stronger within us, that we do sin less. And up until the day that you take us home and we leave our sin nature here, we should be sinning less and less and less. And we need to repent in order to do that. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.